The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com slash connect. Our teaching text comes from Matthew 16, 21 through 27. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. All right, all right. Hey, guys. It's good to be with you all. Thanks for being here. Hey, Ian. It's good. Uh, My name's Walker. If we have not met... It's good to be with you guys. Uh, if this is your first time or your first couple of times, we're really glad that you're here. Thanks for coming. Thanks for being here. You, if that's you, you are catching us on the very tail end of our series that we've entitled The Fruit of the Spirit and the Time of the Flesh. So next time you see us, there won't be any more mango-colored <laughs> stuff, which I'm sad about. I like this branding. This is good. This is good. <laughs> Uh, Anyways, we've focused on the passage in Galatians 5 where Paul lists the fruit of the Spirit. It says, Galatians 5, 23 through 23 says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So we've looked at the tension between the fruit of the Spirit and the works of the flesh. We've seen love in a time of selfishness, joy in a time of despair, peace in a time of anxiety, patience in a time of hurry, kindness in a time of bitterness, goodness in a time of brokenness, faithfulness in a time of compromise, gentleness in a time of harshness. And tonight, number nine, we are looking at self-control in a time of self-fulfillment. Self-control in a time of self-fulfillment. So we're going to spend some time in our passage that Anna just read for us. It's Matthew 16, 21 through 27. And we're going to see through this jarring call to discipleship from Jesus that the self-controlled life with Christ is better, richer, and more enticing than the self-fulfilled life of the flesh. First, let's pray. Father God, you are good. You do good. We praise you for your kindness to us and allowing us to be here on another Sunday. We praise you for bringing all of us together. God, we praise you for who you are, that you um, have given us your word, that we might know you from it. God, we pray that you would move in this time, that you would do what only you could do. You could change hearts, convict us of sin, and lead us in repentance. To see you, Jesus, is brighter and better and more enticing than the rest of the world. God, I pray that my words would fall to the ground not be remembered anymore, but God, may your words remain and may they change us. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So a few weeks ago, I left my house to go pick up Tim, our pastor. If you have not met Tim, Tim is our pastor. He's a lovely looking bald-headed man. 
um, he and I were going to lunch. So I left my house, set out for Tim's house, started driving. Next thing I know, I'm pulling into the parking lot of where I go to school. Two miles and a whole 10 minutes away from Tim's house. Interestingly enough, there's a point in the drive where I drive to school where I could probably throw a rock and hit Tim's house. I drive like almost right past it, but something in me didn't click and I ended up at school. (laughs) Has this ever happened to you guys? Like, Have you ever gotten in the car and just totally spaced out and ended up somewhere you didn't intend to be? You get in the car and your mind starts to wander and you daydream and next thing you know, you're (laughs) somewhere totally wrong. In the moment, I laughed at myself and told myself I was a doofus and I headed back to Tim's house But it was in the car ride back to Tim's house that I was actually really convicted about where my mind went. My daydream took me to the snapshot of me and my wife, Sarah, in a house, fenced-in backyard, golden retriever, a couple of kids, an office for me with wall-to-wall bookshelves. If you know me, that's like a dream. It's awesome. Man, wouldn't my life be so peaceful if I had those things? Wouldn't our life be better and richer and more fulfilling if that was what we had as our life? This is my vision of the good life. If I have those things, I'm complete. I'm fulfilled. We all have these kind of thoughts. We have some vision of the good life that we aspire to. And maybe that you daydream about a certain role in a certain company that you know will bring status and money and all the PTO that you could ever ask for? Or maybe it's that your mind runs to the idea of a a certain person or a certain spouse, and finally, to quote Tom Cruise, you'll be complete with that person. You complete me? Good, I'm glad some of you guys got that reference. That's good, that's good. For others of us, it's our kids. It's that they'll be A students. They'll be stud athletes. They'll be competitive college applicants. That's the good life. That's where I finally have my peace. Some of us, actually, if we were true with ourselves, we go to actually a sinful and dark place when we daydream. The good life is the most pleasure that I could have as quickly as I can get it in as large amounts as I can find it. So where, where do you go when you daydream? What is your vision of the good life? Psychologists and theologians agree that humans are what we call telic creatures. This is their fancy way of saying that humans are directed towards a certain end. We're directed towards a goal or an ultimate aim that orients the way that we live on a daily basis. Because I want something, I'll do anything to get that thing. I will orient my life, I will change the way that I live, I will make decisions accordingly as long as I can get that thing. In our cultural moment, all of us, are motivated by some version of the good life. Yet, this good life is typically some version of a fleshly self-fulfillment. We are the masters of our fate. We are the captains of our soul. Our own self-fulfillment is the highest good that we can pursue. For our purposes tonight, we'll define self-fulfillment as carrying to to, to fruition one's deepest desires or worthiest capacities to attain a satisfying and worthwhile life. Carrying to fruition one's deepest desires or worthiest capacities to attain a satisfying and worthwhile life. A more common way that you might be familiar with hearing these 
this idea are these little quips, these little social media phrases that say, follow your heart, live your truth, best life now. These stem from the idea that your fulfillment or your happiness is your greatest aim. This is all over our culture today. Think about how synonymous our identity is with what we do. It's like the third question that you could ask when you meet somebody. What's your name? Where are you from? What do you do? Isn't this like Charlotte in a nutshell? We find our self-fulfillment in our performance. I work hard, and I'm gonna tell you about it. I got a promotion, and I'm gonna blast it on social media. I went on, this, uh, I went on this trip, and I'm gonna post pictures for you to see how fulfilling my life is. We even do this with noble things, right? Like, do you see this cause that I support? Or do you see this, my post about community service? There's this subtext to what we're saying. I will have a good life if I'm recognized for the things that I do. Don't I live a fulfilling life because I do these things, because I'm passionate about these causes? Or think about how readily we identify with the things that we have. My good life is in what I own, what neighborhood I live in, how Instagrammable my house is, what logos are on my clothes. I will be fulfilled if I have these things. Maybe it might be your looks. We feel more fulfilled when we know that we are the most attractive person in the room. When those looks fade or we don't look the way that we think we should, we are unfulfilled. Or think about how we find fulfillment in who we have, right? Tom Cruise style. If I can only have that person, then I will be fulfilled. Or as long as I have my family, or as long as I have my kids, I'll be okay. These are the kind of people who are crushed with a breakup. Not just hurt, but crushed. Or maybe it's not just one person or a small group whose attention you crave, it's the opposite sex as a whole, or even everybody, all people. I am fulfilled if I am desirable in the eyes of other people. I am fulfilled if I am interesting enough to be sought out by other people. This last one's a bit more nuanced, but think about how, we, how readily we identify with our own desires in our culture. I am my passion. I need to do what I love or else I'm wasting my life. I need to manifest my deepest desire on the surface of my life in order to truly and fully be myself. This is actually what's happened with sexuality in our culture. We've uh, bought into this idea that we have to fully manifest who we are on the inside, on the surface, on the outside, for everybody to see, to be fully ourselves. So the core in all of this, the core of self-fulfillment is that this earthly life is all that matters. This is it. Therefore, I have to force my vision of the good life to happen or else, what's the point? What's the point of life? Now, now just so we're clear, it's not necessarily a one-for-one that self-control is directly opposed to self-fulfillment. In fact, we actually have a category for the practice of self-control if we actually looked and took inventory of our lives. So it may be unfair to say that self-control is opposed to the idea of self-fulfillment because we have this category that says, I will make sacrifices as long as they help me get where I want to go. I will have self-control in what I eat because I want to look a certain way. The reality is that we will actually make extraordinary sacrifices so long as our sacrifices help us get to that good life. So, the, so that category of self-control is there. We have 
a little bit of a refined category, but the way that the Bible defines self-control is different. When Paul says that the fruit of the Spirit is self-control, what he doesn't mean is that we control ourselves to get what we want. Instead, we are, su- we are to subdue our desires in light of Jesus. So that's the way that we'll define self-control for all pur- our purposes, the power to subdue your desires in light of Jesus. You'll notice, too, that that definition does not say that we are to rid ourselves of our desires. That would be the wrong reaction to our self-fulfillment and our pursuit of our desires of the flesh. The wrong idea would be to rid ourselves of any desire. Instead, it's that our desires are subdued. They are put in order. They are controlled. This is the idea conveyed when you look at the word in the original language. It, has, it carries this idea that you have power the power to have control over yourself. In other words, your desires are not running your life. Instead, you are running your desires. It carries this notion of power. You have authority. You have power over your flesh. The Bible talks about how the athlete shows self-control to win. We could all marvel at the power of a professional athlete, but what actually might be more impressive is the power of their own self-control to follow their daily training program. If you have ever watched any documentaries about how some of these professional athletes train, you know that to be the case. The other place scripture talks about self-control is with sexual sin. Those who have struggled with sexual sin or addiction know that the power of that sin can only be mastered by a greater power of self-control. But it's not a power that somebody just conjures up within themselves. Self-control is a power that is gifted to us by the Spirit. This biblical view of self-control confronts any remnant of our own self-fulfillment. Nothing is going to come from inside ourselves. Nothing's going to do it. The Bible shows us that our hearts are actually really wicked and how we're more sinful than we could ever imagine. Because of that, our self-fulfillment is curved inward so that we can attain our vision of the good life. But the Bible makes us a much, much better offer. The self-controlled life with Christ is better, richer, and more enticing than the self-fulfilled life of the flesh. Let's look again at Matthew 21 to see if that's really the case. We'll pick up in verse 21 and we'll read for a little bit, then we'll talk. So it says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. To situate ourselves in the story, Jesus has just come to his disciples and he's asked them, who do people say that I am? They toss out a few ideas. Hey, they say that you're Elijah. They say that you're John the Baptist. But Jesus stops them and he presses a little harder. He says, who do you say that I am? Peter goes star student on us and he says, you are the Christ, the son of of the living God. Wow, okay, good job, Peter. 50 gold stars, that's awesome. Peter's confession here is a turning point. Jesus' impending death is on the horizon for the rest of the gospel narrative. 
Peter and the rest of the disciples are just beginning to understand who Jesus is. He's the Messiah. He's the promised one that the scriptures foretold. He's the one who has come to bring salvation. Peter's confession shows us their realization, but it's also what makes our passage tonight so jarring. Like talk about whiplash. Peter has just set the curve on the exam, and now he's being called Satan. Jesus is trying to prepare his disciples for what's to come, but Peter's, he's not having it. He has the audacity to confront Jesus. He implies that he actually knows more about the Messiah than the, than the man himself. The people was trying to teach the master. Peter rebukes Jesus. Like, this is crazy. What is he doing? He says, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. God forbid that you should experience such suffering. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, Jesus. And it's one that doesn't include suffering and self-denial or self-control. Jesus wheels around and he puts Peter in his place. Get behind me, Satan. This is the same language that we saw when Jesus confronts the devil and his wilderness temptation that we talked, actually talked about a couple of weeks ago with our sermon on faithfulness. It's the exact same temptation. The devil tempted him with power without suffering. Now Peter is too. He says, you're a hindrance to me. You have set your mind on the things of man and not on the things of God. Peter, you want self-fulfillment and not self-control. Peter, you want to have the crown of righteousness at the end, but you don't really want the cross. This is the tension of our self-fulfillment and our self-control. Our flesh wants the good things that come with Jesus. Our flesh wants the crown of righteousness at the end of our life, our glory, but we want it without the cross, our suffering, our self-denial, our self-control. But the way of God recognizes that the only way to that crown of righteousness at the end of your life, the only way comes through the cross. Our glory with Christ only comes through our self-control in Christ. This is the tension. The things of man versus the things of God. Self-fulfillment of the flesh versus the self-control of the spirit. This is at the core of this tension. Will we live a life of self-fulfillment that seeks to give us what we want when we want it? Or will we live a life of self-control, a life willing to suffer with Jesus because life with Jesus is better than a life of self-fulfillment? Jesus explains in the next four verses why a self-controlled life with him is better, richer, and more enticing than the self-fulfilled life of the flesh. Look with me at verse 24. We'll read for a little bit and we'll stop. It says, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. So first, your self-control is a gift in Christ. Jesus is held up in this passage as our consummate model for what self-control looks like. Peter is tempting him with that same idea that he can get all that the Father has promised without following the will of the Father. 
Hey, Jesus, let's not do this like pain and suffering thing. That's not, that doesn't sound good. Let's just do the triumphant conquering king kind of thing. Like that sounds really cool. Let's just do that. Let's fulfill that part of the prophecy. And let's just leave this self-control, self-denial thing. Let's just not talk about that very much. Tempting offer, but Jesus is not swayed. He understands the father's plan and he willingly submits himself to it. He willingly denies himself. He denies his own self-fulfillment perfectly showing self-control. And he, fathers, and he follows the Father's plan. And for us, Jesus sets the pace. If you're to follow Jesus, he calls you to follow in his footsteps. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. Jesus has done it, and we're called to it also. Jesus denies himself, and he willingly, willingly goes to the cross. Don't let that image sit lightly on you. I think sometimes we can cheapen the cross. Human wisdom and our fleshly fulfillment would say, this is nonsense for our savior to willingly go to the torture machine and to willingly sacrifice his life. That's crazy. Why would he do that? But Jesus trusted in the plan of the father. Jesus's death, resurrection, and ascension are good news for us. They point us to the truth that Christ has actually triumphed over sinful flesh. He himself is our self-control. Without Christ, our flesh runs rampant. Why would we say no to anything? What, what do we have to control ourselves other than just our own brute force? Without Christ, why would we not fulfill every desire of our flesh? Why not? But in Christ, you walk in the newness of life. We've talked about both the grace and the grit piece during this, this season, uh, this series. This is the grace part. Jesus has conquered the flesh. We are not only called to practice self-control, we also have the means by which we can practice it. And that's being found in Christ. The Holy Spirit gives you the power to subdue your flesh. In Christ, self-control is not just this white knuckle forcing your life into submission. Instead, Jesus gives us the power of self-control in and through the Spirit. This is the power that we're talking about. The power of self-control is actually found in the cross. David Mathis says this. He says, true self-control is not about bringing ourselves under our own control, but under the power of Christ. Some of you may be familiar with the ancient author Homer. He wrote a book called The Odyssey. You probably read it in middle school at some point. If you haven't, welcome to English class. Uh, the main character in the Odyssey is a character named Odysseus. He's a noble guy. He's traveling home in this scene from battle. He's on a ship and he's got all his men that he's in charge of and they're trying to get home. And he has been warned about this specific um, encounter that he is going to have on his sail back home. He's been told about this, this song of the sirens. These sirens take the form of beautiful women and they sing to seduce sailors over to them. But what happens is that the ships just crash on the rocks and the sailors die. Many well-intentioned sailors have been enchanted by the beautiful singing of the sirens. Odysseus, wanting to heed this warning, he takes it seriously. So when the ship approaches the region of the sirens, he gives a bunch of beeswax to all his men and they shove it in their ears. Then they tie Odysseus to the mast of the ship. 
As the ship approaches the island, the sirens start to sing. They sing to Odysseus. He hears the song, and his heart is captivated. He longs just to jump into the water and to swim over to the sirens. The ropes dig into his arms. As he strains, as he tries to break free, his men pull tighter and tighter and tighter, and they row faster and faster and faster. Eventually, the ship sails out of earshot of the song, and Odysseus's sanity returns. You see, it took a power from outside Odysseus to restrain his flesh. Even though he was wary of the danger before the voyage, he needed his men to tie him and hold him in place. So it is with Jesus. We can be wary of our tendency towards self-fulfillment, yet we can easily succumb to it. Being found in Christ is the only power by which we can truly have self-control. So when Jesus says this to Peter, and by extension, he says it to you in this passage, that you are to follow him, you're to deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow him. He is drawing your gaze up. Something or someone outside of yourself has to give you the power to subdue your flesh. That someone is Jesus. He has authority over the flesh. And your being found in Christ means that you too have authority over your flesh. Not because you can drum up any power in yourself, but because Christ himself is your power. Do you view Jesus this way? Do you view him this way? So when the inevitable tension arises between your self-fulfilling pursuit of the good life, pleasure, riches, stability, power, whatever it may be, whatever your good life looks like, and this tension arises between the good life and your pursuit of Jesus, will you trust that Christ himself is the gift of self-control to you? When you're gripped by the pull of temptation, the first step in fighting this pull is not to pull up your bootstraps and just to faith harder. That's not it. The first step is to look up. Remember Christ, who he is. Ask him for strength. Gaze upon his beauty and power. Only then you will be able to exhibit true self-control. As a result, now your response of self-control is actually part of your worship of Christ. Look again with me at the wording of verse 24. It says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. There's a sense here in Jesus' words that your self-control will be the testament to Christ's work in your life. He is saying that it's part and parcel to the life of a Christian for you to exercise self-control. Jesus purposefully does this. It's evident based on Peter's response, the disciples don't want a savior that requires something of them. Peter can't fathom that the Messiah would have to be murdered, that his followers would suffer, that he would ask hard things of them. Might I suggest that we're not that different? We want Jesus, but not too much. We're okay with Jesus as our friend. We're okay with even Jesus as our Savior. But when it comes to Jesus as Lord, it's a different story. We want our vision of the good life, and Jesus exists to help us get there. He's there to confirm our vision, and he's there to help us get there. 
When we have to choose between our vision of the good life and the call of discipleship to Jesus, it gets really uncomfortable. We don't want Jesus to call us to deny ourselves or to be self-controlled if we're going to follow him. We don't want that. Be honest with yourself for a second. If following Jesus means that you might not achieve all you'd hope in your career or your passion, do you choose earthly success? Do you choose following Jesus? If following Jesus means that you might not live in that neighborhood, buy that house, drive that car, or wear that brand, do you choose that earthly pleasure? Or do you follow Jesus? Or on the flip side of that one, if following Jesus means that you actually do move into that neighborhood, you do pursue that career, you do plant roots with your neighbors because that's where Jesus is calling you, do you do it or do you avoid the boring life? Maybe following Jesus means you don't live in some crazy place. Maybe following Jesus means you put down some roots in the city and you live unglamorously for the kingdom. If following Jesus means you have to control your lust and say no to your sexual desire, do you pick the temporary pleasure or do you honor Jesus? If following Jesus means you have to die to a vision of the good life that you have, do you choose the vision of self-fulfillment or do you honor Jesus? The way you live is telling of the vision that you have for the good life. If somebody watched the way you lived, would they be convinced that Jesus is real and you love him? Hear me when I say this, though, that some of these things in and of themselves are not necessarily bad. Owning a house, having a career, those things are not necessarily bad. However, they become bad when they are part of visions of self-fulfillment that crowd out your love for Jesus. They become bad when we treat Jesus like a prop in our one-man play. He's just there to make us look good. They become bad when we treat Jesus like a step on a staircase for us to get to a higher level. He's just there to make us better. They become bad when we treat Jesus like a vending machine. We only go to him when we want something. The call of Jesus is to come and die. It's to go all in. My chips are all in. My life, my career, my family, my vision, my good life, my identity, it's all yours, Jesus. It's all yours. You come first, not my own self-fulfillment. Most of us would agree to this, but the tug of self-fulfillment is really subtle. We make little compromises with our self-control. We think sometimes that we're entitled to sin because we've been so good for Jesus, but we don't realize that these little sins are actually serving a vision of the good life that's contrary to what Jesus is calling you to. We indulge where we could be generous. We hoard when we could bless. We seek pleasure when we could deny ourselves. Proverbs actually talks about this slow fade. Proverbs 24, 33 through 34 says, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. It's a subtle fade. Small choices. I'm just going to compromise and pursue myself here rather than be self-controlled. But these subtleties are a slippery slope, almost like a snowball 
rolling down a hill, getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Proverbs, in the chapter later, actually captures this unraveling. Proverbs 25 says, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Nothing left. We've already established this passive receiving of Christ that happens. This this is the grace piece. The self-control of Christ is a gracious gift to us. However, there's also a grit piece to this. As a Christian, you have a role in pushing back your flesh to exhibit self-control. You have a role in this. Exercising self-control found in Christ is part of your spiritual worship. As a disciple of Christ, you will look this way. Christians, because of Jesus, should be those who exhibit self-control to the rest of the world. Christians should also be the one who are most hopeful of growth and self-control. Christians recognize this because we know that ultimately the way up is down. To receive that crown of righteousness at the end of life means I have to deny myself and pick up my cross and follow him. The athlete does this, right? The athlete trains hard. The athlete controls what he eats. The athlete disciplines his body in a way so that he can compete and win. But it's the process that makes the win possible. We too are called to the process, to the grit of daily self-control that subdues our desires, that pushes back our flesh and submits to the way of Jesus. We do so because the way of Jesus is better Remembering this grit is important because your self-control matters. Look at what Jesus says in verse 27. He says, for the son of man is going to come with angels in the glory of his father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. So what you do today matters. What you look at on the internet tonight matters. Where you compromise your self-control matters. You're practicing what you're gonna do for eternity. And there will be a reward coming for how you have spent your time. The glory of the crown comes after a lifetime of cross-bearing. Your self-control matters. Luckily for us, though, the fulfillment does not have to wait for the end. Jesus offers us himself now. Look at verse 25. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. These are Jesus' words. Listen to this again. Whoever will save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Life is found in Christ. The fulfillment that you are so desperate for is found fully and completely in Jesus. There's no fulfillment apart from him. There is no good life that does not involve some submission to Christ that leads us to self-control. Those who try to hold on to their own visions of self-fulfillment will never actually be fulfilled. The person who dies with the most toys or the most money or the coolest life doesn't win. The overarching theme of this passage is that self-control now in Christ leads to fulfillment. These social media hashtags and self-help trends pale into comparison to the reward in Christ. Think about it. Best life now, the best life is one that is so captured by the beauty of Jesus that you subdue your flesh. 
live your truth, Jesus is the truth. There is no higher. Because of that, he can make demands on your life to deny yourself, to take up your cross, and to follow him with a self-controlled life. He, he can do it because he is the truth. Follow your heart. Jesus is the only thing that will reach the depths of your heart and truly bring fulfillment. Nothing else will. The drumbeat of this whole series has been that the, the fruit of the Spirit are found in Christ. Life in Christ is better than life in the flesh. There's a sense that this self-control in a time of self-fulfillment could actually be the fruit of all that we've talked about. That all the fruit could be summed up in this one fruit, self-control. The fulfillment we so seek in the works of the flesh is only found in Jesus. He is the pearl of great price. He is the treasure hidden in a field that you would sell everything to buy. He is joy. He is the end of all of our self-control. Life with him is better and richer and more enticing than your self-fulfillment. He is the reward and he is worth your self-control. So this week, as we look at our practice guide, this is not something that we do out of obligation. We're not just white-knuckling this practice of fasting. We're pressing into this practice guide. We're doing this discipline of fasting because we know that our self-control is the rightful response of worship to the one who has given us himself. He's given us the best gift, himself. So we're not trying to white-knuckle our self-control. We're actually growing in our love of Jesus. I would encourage you to apply this practice guide with me. If you would, just pray with me. God, you are good. You have been so good and gracious to us. We praise you for Jesus, the finished work of the cross. God, I pray that we would not take the cross lightly. We would not grow callous to the news that our Savior actually denied himself to the point that he would be tortured and murdered. And God, I pray that we would follow suit, that we would walk a life that is marked by self-control, that our self-control would be a testament to the watching world, that Jesus is real, and that we love Jesus because he loves us and he is the end of our self-control. He is the pearl of great price. Spirit, I pray that you would do this in our lives it would sense that a self-controlled life is better, richer, and more enticing because of Jesus and whatever self-fulfillment our flesh could conjure up. We love you and we praise you. It's in Christ's name. Amen.